we began working through the Gospel of John. In this particular uh, verse-by-verse series, I'm endeavoring to present scriptures in a way which um, we can apply them to our lives and grow up in maturity. That's the theme for this year, is growing up in a mature man, a perfect man. So um, rather than just teach you exactly what the passage says in an in-depth exposition and word-by-word thing, we're going a little bit more zoomed out and trying to be applicable, which is hard for me because I love the nitty-gritty Greek details. But uh, in other words, we're, we're just looking at the life of Christ Jesus, how as believers we might imitate him and become more like him. That's the goal of this uh, series. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about, John introduced us to the birth of Jesus. And this is John's description of the birth. He says, in the beginning was the word. Well, Jesus, he is pointing to the fact that Jesus wasn't really born in the sense that he is always existing. He was there. But he says he was born in the fact that he became flesh. And so John is, is talking, and he's, this is his description of the nativity scene. He leaves out a lot of the details. But he covers a lot of things that the other three Gospels do not. He calls Jesus light and life. And these are two big themes throughout the book. If you weren't with us, I would encourage you to underline those, write them down, and look for them throughout the Gospel of John. He says that he tabernacled. Jesus dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. It's the same word. He was speaking in terms that they would understand. They understood the glory of, the, the, of God would come and descend in the tabernacle and the temple and, and rest on the Ark of the Covenant. This is what tabernacling means. And so it, John was, was saying that the glory of God was housed on earth in the bodily form of Christ Jesus. That was the language he was using. And we talked about the first week, again, the purpose of John's writing encourage you to star this, write it down, get familiar with this. I've, I don't know, said it probably 10 or 12 times over the past two weeks already. John chapter 20, verse 31. This is why he wrote the book. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose. John 20, 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's coming to point that out. There was uh, bad teaching going around. There was the false doctrine heresy that Jesus was just an ordinary person. He wasn't really God. The Gnostics were pushing this. And John is correcting this. He's saying that you may believe he really was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in that information, that alone will get you saved. Now, last week we got into John's first witness. This is in the context of proving that thing, that Christ Jesus is the Son of God. He says, I call to the stand John the Baptist. The leaders had sent some people to interrogate John and ask him some question. Why are you doing these things? And they go to him and approach him. They find out he's baptizing some people, washing people beyond the River Jordan. He says, and they ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one, the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm not. And then they ask him, well, then are you Elijah? And he says, no. And he says, are you... Moses, he says, no, and why are you washing these people? Now, John, full of humility, he, he declined to be associated with the office of Elijah. Jesus did later, we talked a little bit about that, say that he was fulfilling that. But John, in his humility, was turning their attention to Jesus, whose sandals he was unworthy to untie. He was following the leading of the Spirit, 
in preparing people's hearts. This is what the forerunner John the Baptist was. He was preparing people for the reception of the anointed one, the long-awaited anointed one, that they would have their hearts and attention turned to the reception of the ministry of Christ Jesus. And he did something bizarre, really unthinkable. He baptized beyond the River Jordan. This was, this was an area known where the Gentiles were settling. We finished up last week with this verse and perhaps the most powerful statement of the chapter, if you're hopefully in John 1 by now. I want to pick up in verse 29. Excuse me, not in 29. Is it 29? Yes, it is. 29. I'm in the wrong page. John 1, 29. We left off on this verse. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. That's the first account, the first witness John, the writer, is saying, John the Baptist is the first witness to the stand. He himself was saying, this is the Son of God. He was prophesied of. John, there's going to be a, for, there's going to be a forerunner. And John fulfilled that, that mission and says, this is whom you have been reading about in Isaiah. Now, John still... A f- this is the Baptist. John the Baptist is, I know it's confusing. We got John the author and John the Baptist. John the Baptist, still full of humility, is explaining that Jesus is above him because he is the pre-existing one. In other words, even though because he was born, don't get confused by that, he wasn't just a man, he always existed. And he's pointing back and building their faith up to understand that there was something special going on with this Jesus, this man, the Son of God. He always existed. Jesus was born, he became flesh, but he was not created. He always existed. And he's testifying that Jesus is fully man and is fully God. Now, scholars call this what? Do we have, do we, does anyone know the term for that? Where Jesus is, it's the duality of Jesus, we call it, but there's a fancy word scholars like to call it the hypostatic union. And this is the, a fancy way of, the, you know, in Christian theology of describing that Jesus has a special function, Fully God and fully man. How can you be 100% of both? Well, that's Jesus. That's the hypostatic union. That's what John is trying to describe to us. He said he became flesh, but he was always existing. And so John is sharing about the baptism of Christ. And I said two weeks ago that, that John was sharing about the birth of Christ in a different way. He became flesh. And he's sharing about the baptism in a different way from the other three Gospels. Does anyone remember the special term for those other three Gospels? Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is considered kind of a standalone, doesn't have a fancy term because of how much is different in it. About two-thirds of the Gospel of John is unique to John itself. Describes the same events, but in a very different way, covering some details that are different. His purpose is different. 
These things are written that you may believe Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him you might have life in his name. And so this birth of Christ is covered in all of the Gospels, and so is this baptism, except John's description of the baptism of Jesus is quite different. Now, you could certainly go to the other accounts, and we could fill in the gaps, but remember, we're approaching this book a little bit differently to apply it to our lives and see how we can be like Christ Jesus. So John is presenting his message in a way, and here's what he says is important. I need you to know that Jesus always was, yet he was born. After he was born, we don't really care. The first thing you need to know about him is that he was baptized. That's what John is telling us. Thirty-some verses into this book, 30 years have already passed. We're moving along speedily in Jesus' life. That's what we've learned. Birth, baptism. And, now, and so if you're going to get anything from this section of Scripture in, how, in regard to how you ought to imitate Christ Jesus, listen to this. Be baptized. Does baptism save you, Pastor? No. It is by grace that you are saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that any man may boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Baptism doesn't save you. Scripture is very clear on this. But that is true both ways, church. I'm not just talking about whether or not baptism is necessary to go to heaven because there's a whole group of people that think, well, baptism, you have to be baptized to be saved. But there's a whole other group of people that they believe just because they were baptized, they're going to heaven. It's not of works. That's not how you get there. So many so-called Christians think that as long as they've been baptized by some priest or pastor, that they're going to heaven no matter what. Listen up. Anyone can put on a wedding ring. But that doesn't mean that you're necessarily married. Legally married. Do you know, just because you've been baptized and you're all up in this church every week, that doesn't mean that you are necessarily saved. Baptism doesn't save you. We've got to get that through our head, both sides of that coin. In order to be saved, you must what? Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Then why do we bother with baptism? I'm so glad you asked. Because even though baptism does not make you a believer, it shows that you already are are one. Back to this marriage analogy. When you really, really love your spouse, um, actually, I took my wedding band off. That's terrible. I took it off because poison ivy is swelling my finger so bad. <laughs> when you love your spouse, don't you want to show it off to the world? You wear a wedding band so that other people know that you are taken your heart is with someone else's. Isn't that sweet? You know, you can be a believer in Christ Jesus apart from baptism and all your sins will have been paid and forgiven. You think of the thief of the cross. We use that example often. You've probably heard that. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He wasn't baptized. 
But when you get married and you love your spouse, you put on that ring. And you see, when you trust in Christ to save you from your sin, I think there's a logical and a natural way to want to tell the whole world about it. And that's the first thing that we have to remember. Water baptism is an outward confession that we have trusted in Christ Jesus for the salvation that he has provided and promised. It's a declaration to the world. The last two baptisms I did were my two oldest sons, Caleb and Malachi. Many of you were there. We went down to the river, and there was this boat that was pulling in. You remember that? And they stopped. I guess they picked up on what they're doing. They must have been raised in church. I don't know. Maybe they just noticed something was different. Crowd of people around the bank by a boat ramp, and they kind of came to a slow stop on the boat. And it was kind of cool. There's a testimony of what's going on. There's these two young ones that are declaring to Jesus. They, I don't know where they stood. They were not in church right after church. That, that doesn't necessarily make you Christian or not Christian. But all I'm saying is they stopped and there was a reverence and that's a testimony that these two people are dedicating themselves to Christ Jesus. The world, even if they aren't raised in church, even if they don't claim to be Christian, they understand in this Western culture what baptism is. And it's a declaration. This person claims to be following Christ. Secondly, do you know that we are commanded to be baptized? Or more specifically, we are commanded to baptize others, right? Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught that, you see, making disciples of the nations included baptizing them. Now, I know some of you are old. But I doubt some of you are 2,000 years old and were around before Jesus made this commandment for you to have been baptized by other people. So unless you were alive and following Jesus before he made this command, that means somebody else, in theory, should have baptized you because we have that responsibility. Go convert the world. I'm paraphrasing, and baptize them. I think it's pretty safe to infer that we should be baptized. Peter echoes this in Acts 2.38. He says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's three things here. Repent. Well, kind of four. Receive, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. There's a repentance. There's a part of faith, of believing in Christ and repentance from our dead works. And then we are baptized in Christ Jesus to show outwardly that we believe those things to be so. And then, thirdly, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice that's an imperative. It's expected. He says, do this. This is what you ought to do. This is his first sermon. He's teaching to all these people, and he says, this is what you ought to have done. Repent and be baptized. Now, this is not just about imitating Christ, although that's the angle of my teaching. You see, this is an outward act and symbol that attaches us to the life and work of Jesus Christ. I read this last time I talked about baptism, which actually was not that long ago. We talked about washings in Hebrews chapter 6. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, verse 3, 4, and 5, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, 
so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, what Paul is saying is, he said there's a spiritual thing going on when you are dunked in the water. It's, it's symbolic of you participating in the death of Christ Jesus, and in the same way that the glory of Christ raised him from the dead, what's happening is when you come up out of the water, you are raised to new life. You participate in his resurrection. I don't know about you, but I want to participate in the resurrection of Christ Jesus. I want to go through that resurrection process. Now, again, I, I, I don't want us to be caught up with the idea that we have to be baptized to be saved. But it's something that we should do because, A, he commands us to do it to the world, but it's also participating in his death, but it's also imitating what he did. I want to encourage you, beloved, to seek out water baptism. Submersion, more specifically, if you have not already done so. Now, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with infant baptism. It's a symbolic act of dedication. I've done baby dedications. I believe that's the concept and the, the crux behind uh, infant baptism. Some believe, though, that... Um, the, the cleansing, there's, there's power behind it in a declaration for your household, your family. But I believe, and we, I think we all should understand that believer's baptism is a connection point, just as I read to Romans chapter 6. It's a way of participating in Jesus' death. And so unless you're personally making that conscious decision to be baptized, I would argue that you're not really partaking in a biblical baptism. Because it's that choice of saying, I want to do that, not just having someone else to do it. Now, I could get into all the history of Martin Luther and John Calvin, Anabaptists, where that word comes from. Does anyone know? It means rebaptizer, Because the Catholic Church was the church, and they would baptize or sprinkle infants and babies. And even Martin Luther had pointed out that he kind of disagreed with how this was doing it, but he continued to do it throughout his life. And John Calvin reinforced this infant baptism. So there was this Reformation, and one of the things that the Anabaptists were doing were they saying, we need to rebaptize. We want it to be a personal decision. And so that's largely carried over into the Protestant church. But baptism in the Bible is always meaning submersion. Matthew 3.16, as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. The word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo which means to immerse, to submerge, or to overwhelm. You can't submerse or overwhelm a baby with sprinkling. Some of you were so full of sin that you needed to be held under for a bit longer, you know? <laughs> Wash the devil out of you. You will not find in Scripture any record of infants or even young children being baptized. It's always done in response to faith being expressed to Christ Jesus, which, of course, is something only that you can do as an older, rational, decision-making individual. And so in the context of following Jesus' footsteps, I want to encourage you to be baptized specifically by submersion if you have not already done so. Now, if you have been baptized as an adult, I want to challenge you with something this morning. Who is supposed to baptize whom? 
Go into all the world. Make disciples. Baptize them. That's all of us. How many converts have you baptized since you came to Christ? We have the responsibility to be converting. Part of what our normal responsibility as disciples is, is to be disciple makers. That means that we ought to be so full of the Holy Spirit and so evangelistically minded that as we're witnessing to our neighbors, and instead of just saying, come to church, which is, is better than nothing, don't get me wrong, invite them to church. That's a great starting place. But do you know, I don't know if we fully I think we understand this, but we haven't fully participated and walked into this ministry that we have available to us, evangelism. That we have a responsibility to make disciples instead of just inviting them to church so that they can hear, hopefully, a, a gospel, Bible-centered message from the pastor. You can share the gospel with them right then and there. Sunday school last week, we were talking about Philip going down and seeing the eunuch opens the gospel from where he was in Isaiah, and he says, what's, presenting, what's prevents me from being baptized? So they go right down into the river and they get baptized. How, that's how it ought to be. You're talking to your neighbor. You share the gospel. Maybe it takes 10 years. It doesn't have, it's not always going to be easy. I get it. They say, you know what, brother? I want to let you know that I've been reading my Bible. Oh, great. What have you been finding out? Let them talk, right? It's not always an instant thing. Do you know that I came to Christ, and you share your personal testimony, would you like to accept Christ Jesus as your Savior? Say, hey, let's go on down to the New River. I want to baptize you. Come on over. I'm going to squirt you with a hose. We're going to fill up a tub. You know what? Do it. We have a responsibility. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them. Each of us are priests for Christ, not just pastors, once a year that, you know, offer their congregation some group baptism, whatever. We ought to be doing this as a regular part of our walk. Now, the next thing that John indirectly covers, or alludes to, is the account of Jesus being what I'll call baptized in the Spirit. Birth, <coughs> baptism, third, filling of the Spirit. Some try to argue that Jesus had the fullness of the Spirit already, but you're not going to find scriptural support for that specifically. But I do want to be careful, though, because on the other hand, nowhere in Scripture is Jesus specifically said to have been baptized of the Spirit. It does state that he would be the baptizer of the Spirit, but allow me to give you a few reasons why I believe it's safe to infer that this picture of the dove descending is describing Jesus being filled with the Spirit. Now, we're told, A, the first thing is that we're told John the Baptist specifically was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. But we don't read that about Jesus. It's an interesting thought. My point is, John's situation was the unique one. Let's not assume that Jesus experienced giving his life or putting faith in God and experiencing the Holy Spirit would be any different than our experience. 
Why did John have to receive the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb? Because he would be anointed for ministry before Jesus began his ministry and ascended and sent the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was the special case. He had the anointing of the Holy Spirit before the Holy Spirit was released over the earth in its fullness. In its fullness. Okay? Do you remember Jesus said at this to John? He said in another account, he says, permit me at this time. John's like, I can't be baptizing you. Jesus says, permit me. Allow this. Why? Because Jesus came to set an example for us. He went through this process as a man the same way that we would. Because he was saying, John understood something was unique and different about the Messiah. But Jesus is saying, I need to go through this process also. B, pastor, are you so blasphemous to suggest that our Lord was not full of the Holy Spirit through his whole life? Listen, saying that Jesus was not fully endowed with the Spirit until this time does not take away from his divinity. That's the special nature of the hypostatic union. He was fully God, and he never lost that Godhead. But he was fully man. And merely saying that he was not filled with the Holy Spirit as a man only adds to his humanity. As God, he was fully God. As man, he had to be filled with the Spirit. Those two things are too hard for us to comprehend perfectly. The term baptism of the Holy Spirit, thirdly, was not yet coined. Jesus would have been the first to have received this second blessing while being baptized in the water. This phrase, baptism of the Spirit, is referring to the disciples of those that would come after Jesus and be clothed clothed with the same anointing and power. You can read about this in Acts 1.5, Acts 11.16, Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, John 1.33. But it's worthwhile to point out that there are lots of different phrases for this term that we call baptism in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to, if you're interested in the verses, I can give you to them. There's a bunch of these. Acts uh, 1, 8, 8, 16, 10, 44, 11, 15, 19, 6. You get my point. Lots of these. There's some other places where the baptism of the Spirit is referred to and called other things. Firstly, it's the Spirit coming, or in some translations, the Spirit falling upon. It's also referred to as the Spirit being poured out, Acts 2, 17. It's referred to as the gift of the Father prom- that the Father promised. Jesus himself says that in Acts 1, 4. The gift of the Spirit in Acts 2.38. The gift of God, Acts 8.20. The receiving of the Spirit in Acts 8.15. And so we shouldn't be surprised if John or any of the disciples did not use a particular phrase to describe the experience what Jesus was having when the dove descended and rested on him. Lastly, not lastly, fourthly. Got one more after this. Jesus being filled with the Spirit after water baptism fits the model that was laid out in the Old Testament very well. Let me show you. In Numbers 4.3, we are told that the age of priests entering into the service, those that were being counted up, was 30 years to 50. They started ministry at 30. About how old was Jesus, according to Luke, when he started his ministry? 30 years old. 
There were two parts to the dedication of priests. Leviticus 8.6 specifically calls forth the sons of Levi, and they are washed in water. Remember, we talked about the washings. This was normal for the Jews. They went through lots of different kinds of ceremonial and ritual washings. One of them was the dedication of those priests for service. They were first washed with water when the tabernacle was first given to Moses and the guidelines handed out. And then in the case of Aaron, that washing was followed up with the anointing of oil. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12. Now, I imagine most of you all know that oil is symbolic for the anointing and the resting presence of the Holy Spirit. Saul was anointed to be king. Guess what? The Bible says the Spirit of the Lord was with him. Then the Spirit of the Lord left Saul, right? Samuel went to anoint David. What happened? With oil, the Spirit of the Lord was with him. That's what was so unique. I'm jumping way ahead to Jesus saying, it's to your advantage that I go. Because the Holy Spirit was confined to individuals for special occasions, Elijah and Elisha. That mantle had to be passed along between them. It went from Saul to David and certain judges. They, the, the Holy Spirit anointing rested on them. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we see the dove rested upon Jesus. And Jesus says, it's, it's actually better if I go away. You know why? Because I'm going to be able to give the Holy Spirit without limit to all of you. You may also consider the parable of the ten virgins. There's oil and there's Holy Spirit. They often go hand in hand. So Jesus, about 30 when he starts his ministry, he's washed, and then he's anointed with oil, symbolically receiving the Holy Spirit. Now lastly, looking at our passage, you'll see that the Holy Spirit, specifically verse 32, it remained on him. That means to dwell or to abide. Same word as in John 15. Abide in me. I'll abide in you. Abide in the vine. The Holy Spirit took up residence, made an abode on Christ Jesus. And from this point forward in Jesus' life, the Holy Spirit dwelt with, abode with, remained on him. What I infer what I expect that we all at least could agree on is that something special took place when Jesus come up, came up out of the water. The dove rested and descended on him. In fact, it was this special occurrence which was the proof to John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah. He says, I didn't even notice that he was the Messiah. I couldn't tell just by looking at him. I came to know it by the fact that God fulfilled his word. Well, how did God fulfill his word? John, when you see the dove, you'll know. Now, there's much theory on the dove. I won't get into all of that today, but for the purposes of imitating Christ, know that the dove is a symbol of the Father's blessing and approval of Christ. It's the endowment of the Holy Spirit being full of power. Now, all of the gospel accounts speak of this baptism in the dove descending. Remember, the Spirit of God is spirit. That's deep, isn't it? What I'm saying is, he's not visible. And Luke specifically points this out. 
We often think of, you know, this white dove flapping his wings and landing on Jesus' shoulder or something. Maybe you saw that in some children cartoon, whatever. I don't know exactly what it looked like. But what it specifically says, Luke says, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form. So it was some sort of picture of a dove, is what it looked like and appeared like to them. They had a hard time describing it. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in a, a, a bodily form. Now, I can't tell you exactly why the Spirit was made manifest in that way, but what is important is that they were witnesses to God, the Holy Spirit. Again, he's not visible to us with our naked physical eyes, but he was in this instance. The Holy Spirit took on a physical shape and rested upon Christ Jesus, signifying anointing and blessing, this is the Messiah. John, this is the one. This is the one you've been waiting for. The life of Jesus, a model for us. That's where the application is. How many of you know that you too can be anointed and empowered for ministry? Perhaps you've felt like there is something missing in your life. As a minister of his gospel, have you ever wanted to make a bigger impact? I know I have. Perhaps you're missing more than just anointing. Perhaps you're missing the ministry altogether. The way I see it is this. If you don't have the anointing of the Holy Spirit with you while you're serving Christ, then you aren't really even doing ministry at all. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit to accomplish anything in ministry. Consider the seven men that were set apart to serve tables in Acts chapter 6. Do you know, do you remember that they were specifically, they chose men that were full of the Spirit? Do you remember reading that? Why? Because if you aren't serving tables with the Holy Spirit's help, then you aren't really serving Christ. I hope you're getting it. We need the baptism of the Spirit if we are going to do life like Christ. John, this is his account. In the beginning was the Word. He became flesh. <coughs> Jesus was baptized. Then he was filled with the Holy Spirit so that he could do ministry. This sets up the entire gospel account and life of Jesus Christ. And yet, I think we either A, take for granted the anointing that we've received and the injunction to continuously be filled with the Holy Spirit as believers, or we don't really see the importance of it. So that's why I'm spending time on this again. Because if we want to imitate Christ and do life like Christ looking at the next 20-some chapters, we have to get filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, after you're baptized in the Spirit, it opens the believer up to being filled with the Spirit. You can read about that in Acts 2, 4, Acts 9, 17, Luke 1, 15, and 41, and 67. This fullness of the Spirit we read about in Scripture. But we need to understand that the fullness of that Scripture has a wider term. Paul can, tells us to continuously be filled, Ephesians 5, 18. It's, it's not just a one-time experience. You say, well, you know what? 
even for those of you that may not be fully convinced that the Holy Spirit you know, is a second blessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second blessing, explain to me why Paul says to continuously be filled with it. It's not just something you experience at salvation, but I would correct that and say it's not just something you receive at initial baptism, it's something that we continuously ask for, and that's the point I'm trying to make, is that Jesus, because of a special situation, had the dove rest and remain on him, yet we are still sinful, aren't we, from time to time? What made the anointing leave Saul? Sin. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I've grieved him, I'm sure. I know I have. So I need to be filled back up again. There's a quenching of the Spirit that deals with the power. There's a grieving of the Holy Spirit which deals with sin. And there's these times in our life when the Holy Spirit's anointing is not as effective or not as felt and as strong in our lives, and we need to ask God, fill me back up. Lord, I need, a, I need another dose. I've noticed that I'm, I'm waning a little bit in my, or waxing, which one is it? Waxing? <laughs> the, whole, the anointing is waning in my life. I need some, no, I need some more. Can I remember which moon cycles which? Not that we use those terms for anything else, do we? <laughs> Not only do we need to be baptized in the Spirit, we need to be continually filled with the Spirit. Some of you may be thinking, well, you know, he really teaches on this a lot. Well, I don't really think that's fair. I mean, in my opinion, the anointing and empowering of the Holy Spirit is necessary to the success and growth of the church. Can we agree on that? However, you, whatever you think of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, whether there's, you know, a second blessing of baptism or not, we need the, the anointing. We need the work of the Holy Spirit for the growth and success of a church. Can we agree on that? And so if we aren't living that out, if we aren't embracing the function and the role of the Holy Spirit in the church, why Jesus said it's to your advantage that I go, well, l- allow me to be so blunt. Let's look around the room. A lot of empty seats, aren't there? I'm not pointing fingers. But it would be honest, dishonest if we pretend that each of us individually is living up to the level that God has for us. I, I'm included in this, okay? I'm preaching right at myself. We're, I'm talking about evangelism, laying on of hands, healings. I'm, I'm certainly not saying this to make anyone feel bad or to put anyone down or anything like that. I want more of him. I need more of him. It's just that I want us to be excited about the possibilities ahead. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that is going to bring success and growth to the church. What God wants to do with us, through us, in us, can only happen when we avail ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, it's vital and necessary to fulfilling our mission as a church, as believers. And so as a collective of individuals, if we're not being filled with the Spirit on a daily basis to the level that we ought, then the way that I see it is perhaps that I'm not speaking on the Holy Spirit enough. Because until we get to the place where we are operating at that level of anointing, where we ought to be, then we're lacking. We need to be taught, reminded of these things. 
Now, not to mention, we're talking about comparing the life of Jesus to ourselves in order to grow up into a perfect or mature man. If Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, was endowed with the Holy Spirit, how much more ought we to seek it? Oh, I know some people believe the Holy Spirit was only necessary for 100 years. I don't know where they get that from. Some people believe the Holy Spirit was only necessary to jumpstart the church for the first 70 years until the temple was destroyed. That's what some people believe. And then the Holy Spirit baptism was no longer available. It wasn't necessary is what some denominations teach. But I want you to know that Jesus did what he did as a man because the Spirit rested on him. You can do what God wants you to do only if the Spirit rests upon you. This is important, church. Jesus says to the disciples, you will be clothed with power from on high. Acts 1, excuse me, Luke 24, before his ascension. In Acts 1.8, he says, you will receive power. He repeats it again. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Power. He's talking about power. We can do things without power. We can have churches. We're full of churches all across this land without power. They teach the word, but there's no power. The Greek word is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite from. Let's pretend you need to blast a tunnel through a mountain. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes into you, and he might give you the knowledge to do that. That's knowledge. A lot of churches have knowledge. But unless you have the Holy Spirit dunamis, you don't have the power to get through that mountain on your own. That's what the dynamite's for. He says, not only am I going to give you the knowledge to how to get through this mountain, this obstacle that's in your way, I'm going to endow you with the Holy Spirit power, this dunamis, so that you can blast right through it and make a tunnel. That's the picture, the analogy I want you to have. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. You know, we have great heady discussions about Christ Jesus and salvation. It's, you know, it's a good basis, a foundation, but there's no power. And, and, and the growth and success of the church, in my opinion, hinges on the power and working of the Holy Spirit. We need to be reminded about this from time to time because we have need to be continually topped off in our anointing. Paul tells us to keep on filling yourself. If we were all filled with as much of the Holy Spirit as we could get at the moment of salvation, why would we be told to be continuously filled? You see, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is a tremendous blessing. It shouldn't give you anxiety. Some people get all freaked out. It ought to fill you with excitement. Don't get your get-tos mixed up with your have-tos. Imagine Jeff Bezos. He sends you a letter, and it said he, he wants to give you a billion dollars. Now I've lost you. You're all thinking about what you'd buy. <laughs> but in order to receive your billion dollars, you have to call and confirm your address to receive it. Do I have to? I don't want that. I prefer to live paycheck to paycheck. That's what it's like with the Holy Spirit. It's like, we, eh, not really sure I need that. I'm fine. God has a 
billion dollars, spiritually speaking, he wants to give you. It's like, I mean, you're living paycheck to paycheck right now. You're getting by. What kind of life is that? It's certainly not ministry. This is about power. It's about boldness. It's about confidence and effectiveness. You know what I think? You don't want to know what I think? Okay. You're going you're gonna to hear it anyway. A Christian without power is a Christian that needs the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's simple enough? Oh, beloved, don't neglect the sweet gift of God's Spirit. John says that Jesus would come baptizing with Spirit. John's revelation and understanding of the Messiah was this. He says two things. Jesus comes to take away the sin of the world. And then John the Baptist, we're talking about John the Baptist. His revelation was this. Jesus, the Messiah, has come to take away the sin of the world. The second thing he gives as witness, the first witness to the stand, that he wanted the leaders to know. They were questioning him. He says this, he is going to baptize, not with water like I'm doing, but he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus himself didn't even baptize them with the Holy Spirit. So how we get this idea that it was just for the first disciples is crazy. Jesus ascended, sent the Holy Spirit. They had to wait for it. Don't forget it. Some of you need to do some waiting in the upper room. That's what John the Baptist wanted. That's what he knew of the Son of God, and that's what he wanted the spiritual leaders that came to question him to focus on. I've come to prepare these people for his coming. I may be baptizing with water, but there's another one that's coming after me, and he's going to baptize in the Spirit. Beloved, I would encourage you to seek out both if you have not yet done so. Seek out baptism by immersion and seek out the filling of the Holy Spirit by baptism and the laying on of hands. Consider this, that Jesus did all of that so that you would. 